Good morning. It is a delight to see you here this morning. We're very thankful for your presence. Always a joy to ours to be together and to give glory and praise to our Heavenly Father. If you are joining us for the first time this morning, we want to welcome you and thank you for being here, but also to bring you up to speed on where we are. You've kind of walked in on a series of sermons, and so I like to give you a little background to bring you up to speed. We're kind of using Romans 15:4 as a thought in the background of our minds where the Bible says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime or before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so those words written to the first century saints is that the Old Testament was written for learning. And that by what's written back there, learning it, they then, by us by extension, would have hope from the Scriptures. It's with that thought in mind that we have been talking about the church. The bride of Christ is how she'll be referred to in Ephesians 5, the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. But to learn about that church, we would actually begin in the Old Testament, because that is where God fulfills and begins to bring to pass his purposes and his plans culminating in that church. And so we would ask, keep the first century church in mind as we're studying the Old Testament, as well as the 21st century church. Keep us in mind as we study the Old Testament and learn what God has done for us. To bring us up to speed further, the world had given up God. That's what happened. Paul records it in Romans chapter 1. After leaving the ark, they knew God. They didn't glorify him as God. They exchanged God, and they became idolatrous. This is Romans 1, 18 to 24. The reaction from God to that is God gave them up to themselves, pleaded with them, uh, gave them time and space for mercy to come back to him. But ultimately, he gave them up to themselves. This is Romans 1, 25 to 32. And so what we began to read then is God choosing himself, a person in the person of Abraham, and making him promises, three of them, a land, a nation, and a seed. And those promises then is what's going to bring about God's will ultimately to bring the Christ to die for the sins of the world, to purchase his church with his blood, is how Acts 20 and verse 28 would refer to it. Now, all of that said, we're studying that, and we're early in the development of that. And so we're in Exodus now, if you have your Bibles, you would be in Exodus chapter 4. That's where we'll begin, but again, as we bring you up to speed, Exodus chapter 3, God introduces himself to Moses at the bush that burned but was not consumed. And God said to Moses, I have seen the affliction of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. This is Exodus 3, 6 through 9. It's right after that that God says to Moses, I will send you. This is Exodus 3 and verse number 10 following. And what we began to read is Moses' hesitancy, to put it nicely, to go. 
Moses began to offer up reasons why he was not the one to go do God's bidding in this matter. He began by saying, who am I? He offers four of these excuses, and who am I that I should go back to Pharaoh? A few verses later, he says to God, they won't believe me. Who are you? What should I say your name is? And God said, I am that I am. You tell them that. A little further, Moses says in chapter 4 and verse number 1, they won't believe me. If I go down there and I tell them that you appear to me, they won't believe me. And God began to give Moses signs. These are those miracles that we read about and the purpose of signs. God said these signs two or three times in the first 10 verses. He says that they may believe, that they may believe that I appeared to you. Moses finally said to God, I can't speak well. You know, I've never been a, a man of words. I've never been able to speak well, and you should get somebody else, to which God said, isn't Aaron your brother? Can't he speak well? And so God says, I'll send Aaron with you. And that's where we are right here as Moses and Aaron are now meeting again. This is Exodus 4, if you'll read it with me, beginning in verse 27. Now the Lord said to Aaron, go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. What a, re a reunion it must have been. And Moses then, the next verse says, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which he has sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him. Further, it says, Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the sons of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. He then performed the signs in the sight of the people. And verse 31 ends on a very high note. The Bible says, so the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed low and worshiped. As you're reading your Bible, and anytime you're reading your Bible, there is a great opportunity to be distracted. And I mean that in a very good way, only in that there is so much interesting things in the Bible. There's so much of interest that you could get diverted and go down different paths. For instance, of the myriad of things we could talk about in this section and a little further, is we could begin to focus on the individuals, the people. We could talk about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. We could talk about Moses, the servant of God, faithful coincidentally in all of God's house. We could talk about Aaron, Israel, the Egyptians, the conflict itself. We could talk about the plagues. There were 10 of them beginning in verse uh, chapter 7. The blood, the frogs, the lice, the flies, the moran, the boils, the hails, the locusts, the darkness, and the death of the firstborn, it could all garner our attention, and we could spend a great deal of time noting each one and their significance. We could talk about the magicians, the ones that are going to withstand Moses. They actually replicate some of the, the signs, the blood and the frogs. They try, but they couldn't reproduce the lice. At some point, they admitted this is of God. Israel was not even affected by some of the plagues. There's a distinction made between the Moran. The magicians aren't able to stand because of the boils, the sixth plague. In fact, 
That's their last mention, that they weren't able to stand before Moses. It could be the case that they are mentioned by name in 2 Timothy 3, verses 6 through 9, as Paul talks about false teachers. He says of those false teachers, for these are they that creep into houses and take captive silly women laden with sins, led away by diverse lusts, ever learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And even as Janus and Jamborees withstood Moses, so do these also withstand the truth, men corrupted of mind, reprobate concerning the faith, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be evident unto all men, as theirs also came to be. Somebody withstood Moses with those names, and their folly came to be known. I don't know if that's them. I just don't know who else with those names withstood Moses. At least their names are never recorded if that is indeed someone else. We could talk about who hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that generally gets a lot of attention when you're reading the book of Exodus. God, Pharaoh, the magicians are all credited with hardening Pharaoh's heart. Ultimately, we know God is not evil, and that God would not take away someone's personal choice, and that God holds Pharaoh accountable because of Pharaoh's decisions. In fact, it is the case that Pharaoh was responding to God's commands. He simply did not want to do them. I tell you all of that because I would urge you not to be distracted, not to lose sight, not to get down one of these other paths, but to keep your focus squarely on God. God is where you should place your focus. I would invite you to remember what's happening and why it's happening. We began in Romans 15, 4, we began talking about the church. That's what we're reading. Who is going to cause that to happen? God is. And what we're reading is how he is going to do that. We've reached the point of confrontation. God and Pharaoh, God's servants, Moses and Aaron, but make no mistake, this is about God. Note the first two verses of chapter 5. Now that Moses has revealed it to the people, now that they believe, chapter 5 and verse number 1 says, and afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may serve me or celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I shall obey his voice. I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. This confrontation is the center of our study, the book, and the Bible. This is God bringing about his will. This statement or announcement that Moses makes in verse number one has several thoughts within it. Among them are these. First, it's noteworthy to note that the speaker is identified. Aaron is Moses' mouthpiece, but the message comes from God. In fact, that's how they introduce the thought to Pharaoh. They say, thus says the Lord. It's not us. It's not Moses against Pharaoh. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, this is not one of the gods of the Egyptians. This is not one of the gods of the nations. In fact, the people in the field, the people that you are presently holding in bondage, they have a God. And he said, let my people go. First, the speaker is identified. But secondly, the announcement is personal. The speaker announces that they are actually his people. They're presently serving Pharaoh in Egypt, but what Moses says, God said is, let my people go. They're actually not your people. I know it may appear that way, but they're actually not. They're my people. Thirdly, the announcement is authoritative. Now, when you read it, it sounds like a request. It sounds like that because of the word let. And so, maybe you have Moses and Aaron, and they look and sound as if they're pleading to the person in power. And so, they're standing before him, and they say, let my people go. But it's not really a request at all. In fact, it has this connotation to it. Maybe you can hear it in the background. If you strain your ear a little bit, lean in real close, you can hear or else. I don't know if you can hear it. Can you hear that? It's in there. It's in there. In fact, look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, it's just expressly said. In chapter 8 and verse number 1, the Bible says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, but if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. It sounds like a request, but it's really not. I'm asking you, but if you don't, there will be consequences. Fourth, the announcement is possessive. Whatever control Pharaoh believed himself to have, God is telling him, you don't actually have that control. Presently, my people are serving you, but you let them go that they may serve me, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Now, that's God's announcement through Moses. Verse number two is Pharaoh's response. I believe at some point in the past, I mentioned life kind of being like a, a, a game of tennis or table tennis where one person hits the ball over the net and then the other person is free to hit it back. Have you ever had the ball slammed on you? <laughs> Maybe you sent a nice lofted one. You thought we were just beginning to warm up and the next thing you know it came back 150 miles an hour and, and you began to want. That's what's happening here. God has made the announcement in verse number one, but Pharaoh gets to respond. And you and I should appreciate that everybody gets to respond. It's not like God will take away your ability to respond to him. And so, Pharaoh gets to respond, and he does in verse number 2. And his response is full of disbelief and rebellion. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? <laughs> Can you see the positions of the two men? Can you see Aaron and Moses? Can you see Pharaoh? In my mind, Pharaoh, ha I have him sitting on the throne. 
I have maybe Moses and Aaron looking up to him. And maybe as he sits there in all of his power and might with a pronouncement back, who is this? Who is the Lord, Moses? Pharaoh may have feigned himself a god. And you're talking to me about this God? Who is he? If he had any might or power, maybe Pharaoh feels, wouldn't I know him? I don't even know who that is. Secondly, he says, who is the Lord? But he does understand that I should obey his voice. I said it wasn't a request. Guess who else understood that? Pharaoh understood. You're telling me to do something? Who is he that I should obey him? The things that Moses, the things that Aaron said, they weren't a request, and he understood that. He then says, and you should appreciate it, the fact that he says, who is the Lord that I, I should obey him? Moses, look around. Do you see who I am? Do you see the position I hold? Who is he that I should obey him? You remember that was one of Moses' concerns. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And now Pharaoh is saying, who is he that I should obey him? And so he just absolutely refuses. In fact, he says, I will not. Let Israel go. I won't do it. If I did, I would show weakness. I would show inferiority. I would demonstrate that somebody has more power than me. And Moses, the fact is, I won't do it. Let me ask you this. What can Moses do? It wasn't that long ago, so I feel like you can remember eight minutes ago. <laughs> remember when I asked you to place your focus squarely on Moses is helpless. Moses didn't come with a standing army. Moses came with Aaron and a rod. And so Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. Moses does not have a lot of options after that. And to further illustrate that, Pharaoh proceeded to make things worse for Israel. Slide down, if you will, just a few verses. The king said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw away the people from their work? Go back to your labors. Pharaoh said, look, the people on the land are now many, and you would have them cease from their labors. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously you let them. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose the same on them because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Pharaoh decided that this, this request, this action of Moses should be met with severity and that things should get worse for the very people Moses came to talk about. 
and he did make things worse. In fact, from verse 9 down to verse number 14, they, their lives got worse after Moses came than they were as bad as they were before Moses arrived. Verse number 9 says, let the labor be heavier on the men. Let them work at the and so that they will pay no attention to these false words. And the taskmasters, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, they took that to heart. And they went and did exactly what Pharaoh said. It worked. In verses 15 to 23, the children of Israel felt things worse. And so they pled. The foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, why do you deal with your servants this way? There is no straw given to your servants, yet you keep saying, make the bricks, and your servants are beaten. But the fault is not ours. It's in your people. But he said, you're lazy, very lazy. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord our God. Let me ask you a couple questions based on what we're reading here. When adversity comes into your life, what do you do? Let me ask it another way. Does the source of adversity matter as to your reaction of the adversity or to the reaction? For instance, if somebody hates you or harms you, how do you react to that? What if it's natural disaster and that brings the, the, the disaster or the tragedy? Would that, would that affect it? Maybe time and chance. What if somebody made bad decisions or maybe you made your own bad decisions? What do you do when adversity comes into your life? The children of Israel now have adversity in their life. In fact, they then turn to Moses in verse number 19, the foreman of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. And so verse 20 says, when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron. And as they were waiting for them, they said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand. Moses, you've made our lives work. Wait a minute. Do you remember Back in chapter 4, look there in verse 31. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, then they bowed low and worshiped. What happened? What happened to we're so glad God is concerned about us that he sent Moses and Aaron down here. We're so glad about that. And then Pharaoh went off the rails and made their lives harder and more difficult, and now they are talking to that same Moses. And they say, why did you come down here? You have made us odious in the sight of Pharaoh. You've made things worse. How do you do? when adversity comes to your life? Do you murmur and complain? Do you complain about the circumstances? Do you murmur against those who did it? Do you complain about others, maybe in the church, in your family, parents? 
What effect, what impact does adversity have on me? That's the question. And what's my reaction to it? Now, again, we should know with regards to Israel, in fairness, let's be as fair as we can. Their first reaction was not to complain against Moses. Their first reaction was not to complain against God. What was their first reaction? Probably the same as yours when adversity comes into your life. Look back up in verse 15. Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. What do you do when somebody is misbehaving, mistreating you? You go talk to them. And what do you do? Typically, you ask, will you stop that? It hurts. And I would rather you not do that. I'm uncomfortable with it. I'm displeased with it. It's bothersome. It's trust. Would you quit that? That's what Israel did. They spoke logically to their overseers. They said the fault's not ours. Listen, they explained, you're asking for the same amount of bricks, but you're not giving us any straw. We have to spend time going to gather the straw, and then you want the same amount of bricks. And the time we could spend making the bricks, if we have the straw, we can't have because you got us gathering the straw. The problem's not with us. The problem's with your people. And that's what they say. Reasonable, logical, rational, just right down the line. But you know what? They're talking to somebody who's unreasonable. Have you ever tried to reason with someone who's unreasonable? I promise you this, they are as good as being unreasonable as you are reasonable. <laughs> By definition, you can't reason with an unreasonable person. And that's what they try reason. We just tell them the facts, and that's what people do. We just tell them the facts. Well, no, and once they understand, no, what if they're evil? What if they're unreasonable? And Pharaoh was, and he doubled down. And he furthermore said, you're lazy. That's the problem. Is that the problem? That's not the problem here. You know what they did? They met Moses. So what now then? Well, you've used your reason, you've used your logic, you've stated the facts, and yet it persists. What do we do now? They met Moses, verse 21. They said to him, May the Lord look upon you and judge, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight, and inside of the servants put a sword in their hand to kill us. What did Moses do? Moses, verse 22, says, return to the Lord. And he said, oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Wait a minute. Who brought harm? <laughs> it wasn't the Lord. I thought the Lord was concerned about his people. Didn't you read that? I read that. The Lord was concerned about his people. That's why Moses is down there. But Moses said, you have brought harm to this people. Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh speaking your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Does any of that sound familiar? You know, it's noteworthy that what you do when hardship and adversity comes will probably be what you do when hardship and adversity comes. In other words, it's very likely you will start a pattern of behavior. That when adversity comes, I, and you will default to something. You know, Israel probably couldn't have known it at this point, but this will be their standard reaction to all adversity. Whenever they have issue later, they will complain and they will murmur and they will cry against Moses. Moses will in turn go to God and God will in turn deliver. And will that satisfy? Temporarily. 
because they will have more adversity. You remember the last time you had adversity before this time? What'd you do? Chances are real good. The thing you did this time is the thing you did last time is the thing you did last time is the thing you did last time. I don't know if that's complaining or murmuring. I don't know what you do. But chances are good what you do is what you will do because they will continue and continue and continue to murmur and complain. Do you murmur against God? Do you question his faithfulness? Do you question his care and his love for you? Do you wonder if you should keep being faithful to him? The Bible talks about adversity and it actually gives positive to the outcome of adversity if it's used properly. You and I should do these two things. Do you see adversity as an opportunity? An opportunity to do two things. Number one, to grow your faith. James says in James chapter 1 and verse number 1, my brethren counted all joy when? When you fall into diverse trials, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience or creates endurance. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be complete and entire, lacking in nothing. How does that happen? Adversity. And I counted a joy to grow my faith. When do you suppose is going to be a good time for you to learn endurance? When everything is great? When everything is comfortable? When everything is easy? You know that produces something in us, but it's not endurance. That tempts us to become full and to be uh, less thankful and to feel entitled and to complain about anything that disrupts the comfort and the ease. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, it's when you have lands you didn't plant and vineyards you didn't, uh, uh, you didn't plant and wells you didn't dig and houses you didn't build. I'm going to give you all of that and then beware lest you become full and forget. Fullness, comfort, ease are fantastic things, but they don't produce endurance. You need trial. You need adversity. You need struggle for that. You need some sort of resistance to produce endurance. Don't get me wrong. Please don't hear me say, go and, and pray that the Lord makes our lives hard. We read 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4, and God would that we live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. That's what the scriptures say. What I'm simply saying to you is, when adversity comes, it should be viewed as an opportunity for growth, not a time to murmur and complain. Secondly, it should be viewed as an opportunity to grow closer to God. In 2 Corinthians 12 and verse number 7, Paul says, And by reason of the exceeding greatness of the revelations, that I should not be exalted over much, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me that I should not be exalted over much. Concerning this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul's reaction, most gladly therefore, 
I would rather glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Wherefore, I take pleasure in weakness, in injuries, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. How does God get the glory from your strength? How does God get magnified if you are able? If it's so easy and light, and how is that the case? It's never the case. Paul says God will be glorified, and I will rejoice in these trials. Let's make some quick application to us. Three things then. Number one would be this. All men who are not children of God must understand that they sit in Pharaoh's seat. If you have not given your life to Jesus Christ through the obedience of the gospel, if you have not obeyed the gospel, come to him, submitted to him your life, you should understand you sit right where Pharaoh is sitting. And right now, God sounds like he's asking, but he's not. There is to your life and or else. That's also there. In fact, there's a constant invitation from God for you to come to him. But it has a caveat on the backside that if you should reject his pleadings and his calls, there are consequences there too. For instance, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus invites, here's the plea, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Those individuals who are suffering and bearing the weight of sin, carrying guilt around from the past, things they've done wrong to themselves, to others, to God. You can't wipe that away. You can't dismiss it. Hopefully, you're not trying to drown it or douse it and escape it in drugs and some other thing, but you can't escape you. You take you everywhere you go. You see you in the mirror. In the quiet times when no one is around, that's your own pain of heart and issue. The real challenge you're facing is sin. And since you've sinned against God, there's really nothing you can do to solve the problem. And so Jesus says, come to me. If you come to Jesus, that's the invitation. Come unto me, all ye that are heavy laden. It's not language we use nowadays, heavy laden, burden bearing. But of the animals that they used, it would have been understood the heaviness of the load being carried, the weight that the beasts of burden were being asked to bear. That heavy laden is sin, and it's your burden you're carrying around. Jesus said, if you come to me, if you're laboring under this weight, heavy laden, he says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. There is nothing more freeing, liberating than to get your sins washed away in the blood of Jesus. That's how that's done. Matthew 12 and verse 30, Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. John 12 and verse 48, Jesus said, He that rejected me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Right now, Jesus is your Savior, and he is pleading with you to come to him. But there is coming the day in which that pleading will end. 
and you and I will have to stand before him. Now, I said, if you're not a child of God, if you're not obeyed the gospel, then, then God, you're sitting in the seat of Pharaoh. There is a slight difference, though. Pharaoh is um, going to be punished, he and his land. But it's interesting. Pharaoh was holding God's people in bondage, and God wanted to set them free, or else the suffering of Pharaoh and his people would occur. Today, you are holding yourself in bondage to sin. And God is trying to free you from you. You are both the warden and the prisoner. You're both the taskmaster and the servant. And God is saying, I want you to be free. John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. God's goodness is in such, such kindness that he's trying to free you from your own bondage. And so Jesus would warn if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. And where I am, you cannot come. This is why you read words like Acts 2 and verse 40 and 41, where the apostles, the Bible says, with many other words that he exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. God is pleading with you to free yourself from sin. Secondly, God is in control. That should be one of the things we learn from the Old Testament. God is in control despite the appearance of things, and God's people need to remember that. Pharaoh said, no. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? I know not the Lord. I will not let them go. Here's what you should know. That didn't surprise God. And it shouldn't have surprised Moses and Israel. Have you ever heard or used the expression, everything is going according to plan? That's exactly what God could have said when Pharaoh said no. Everything's going according to plan. Go back to Exodus 3 and look at verse 18. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says, and they will listen to your voice. Now, actually, go back to verse 16, because this is before Moses even said that they won't believe him. This is before the signs. This is before Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece. This is after Moses said, who are you? Verse number 14, and God answered. Just a few verses later, verse 16, God says, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I am indeed concerned about you and what has been done to you in Egypt. You read that in chapter 4 in verse number 31. That's what Moses went and said to the elders, God is concerned about you. And they rejoiced. This is God saying, you're going to go do that. What's going to happen next? Verse number 17. So I said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse number 18, 
when the elders of Israel hear that, verse 18 says, they will pay heed to what you say, and you with the elders of Israel will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has met with us, so now please let us go a three-day journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse number 19 says, but I know, what does God know? The king of Egypt will not permit you to go. Why is Moses concerned about that? Why is Israel concerned about that? God said, you're going to go tell Israel, they're going to be glad when you come. That's exactly what happened. And then he said, you're going to go in to Pharaoh. You're going to tell him, and he won't let you go. You know, we read chapter 4. That's exactly what happened. It brings us to this third point, and that is God's word will come to pass. God knew Pharaoh wasn't going to let them go. But keep reading. Verse number 20 says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. It seems that God's people have short-term memory loss. That God said he's not going to let you go. And then God said, after this, he will let you go. Did the first thing come to pass? Did he say no when God said he would say no? Well, now you know the rest of the story. You know when we get to the last plague, chapter 12, you do know that after that, Pharaoh rose up in the night and said, get out. You mean he did let him go? Yes, just like God. When will God's people appreciate the fact that their God is not like the other gods? That there is no God but this God. And that what he has said has and will absolutely, only and always, come to pass. The church should learn from the Old Testament. What's happening in the first century church when you begin to read your New Testament from Acts to the Revelation? What's happening to God's people? They've been called out of sin. They've had an exodus. They've been called out of sin into God's family. They are his people, just like Old Testament history. Who provided their deliverance? God did that. Did they have enemies, adversity, hardship? Absolutely. The Jews persecuted the church. The Romans aided in the persecution of the church. And what did the church begin to do? There's a reason Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without murmuring and disputings. Why would you tell people that? Because how do you react? The church in the first century is not different than the church in the 21st century. What should the church learn about these things? God is greater than anything or anyone. God is independent of his creation. God has plans and purposes that benefit us but are not determined by us. God's word is true and it will come to pass. All of the promises of God are true. Remember, we didn't start in Exodus. We started in Genesis 3 because that's where the sin occurred. And by verse 15 of Genesis 3, 
God was talking about the seed coming. And then he made promises to Abraham, Genesis 12. And then Joseph gets into Egypt by God's direction and providence. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And then Moses at a bush, burning but not consumed. And now before Pharaoh, he will not let you go, but he will. What does the church learn? Hebrews 13, 5, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What blessing does that provide? Verse number six, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let me ask you this. Who was the last or what was the last thing that caused you great trial and affliction? Was it the weather? Was it the ocean? Was it the birds? Was it the animals? Or was it a human being? God is my helper. What can man do to me? If you're not a Christian this morning, not a child of God, all of this is about the coming of Jesus and how it came to happen. And God's promises were fulfilled, and Jesus did come. He was born of a virgin, Matthew 1. He is God with us, and it's God in the body of Christ inviting you to come. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, go into all the world and preach this good news. What's the good news you can get out of sin? What's the good news? You can come and be a part of his body, his church. What's the good news? You can be saved and freed from your sins. How do you do that? Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus said, if you believe not that I am, you will die in your sins. You have to repent. Repentance is a change of mind that's brought about and the result of godly sorrow. You see, at some point in life, when we come to a knowledge of the truth, we learned that there was a victim to my wrongdoing, that it wasn't just me. It wasn't just the person involved. It wasn't just that, that I was actually sinning against God, that I was doing him wrong, that sin is the transgression of his law and that I was breaking his heart and violating his goodness. That's sin. What the Bible will say is, change your heart and your mind about that. Be willing to turn your life around and walk with Jesus. Right now, you're walking against him. You're walking away from him. Repentance would be godly sorrow that leads you to change your mind and your life. Jesus said, if you don't repent, you'll perish, Luke 13, 3. And then we confess. Well, what do we confess? We confess not our sins. We repent. We change our mind about that. What we confess is our belief in Jesus. We say the same thing he said. That's what confession is, John 9. We do that with our mouths, Romans 10, 9 and 10. That confession that I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I say what he said about himself. He said he's the Son of God. I agree, and I'll tell everybody, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus says, if you don't confess me, I won't confess you. That's what we're doing. And then we get baptized. 
of why do we get baptized? There's so many people who would have you believe that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation, that you don't really have to do it, that it's an outward sign of inward grace, that, that you're already saved, and then later you get baptized. Friends, the Bible just does not teach that. What the Bible teaches is all of these things lead you to the place where you are now a candidate, a person ready to be buried with Jesus so you can have those sins washed away. Passages like Acts 2, when they first preached this message that Jesus rose from the dead, Acts 2 verses 22 to 24, they say to those individuals, some of which had a hand in killing him, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of you, among you by signs and miracles and wonders which God did by him in your midst, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Peter and the other apostles are telling that audience of people, you killed Jesus and God raised him. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. Later in that sermon, after they supported by prophecy, by Old Testament Scripture, they supported by David. He was a prophet. He talked about it, that Christ was exalted, sitting at the right hand of God, and the very Jesus you crucified, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Verse 36 says, Now let all the house of Israel know surely God had made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? What they were told to do then is what we would encourage you to do right now. Maybe you have the same question on your heart. I've been carrying around this sin, as heavy burdens. I've been trying to get rid of it. I've been trying to be a better person. I've read these self-helps. I've been trying to do this. Friends, it's not in you to do it. No, you need Jesus. And what they were told is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Why do you need to get baptized? Because you're going to die to the practice of sin. We're going to bury the old man. You're going to rise and then walk in newness of life. And then you will be saved. Friends, if you've never done that, we beg you to do it this morning. If you are his child and you have done that but have lived in a way that's not pleasing to him, you know our Heavenly Father loves you so much. His grace and his arms are ever open, and we beg, come home if you need to. Whether you need to put Christ in on baptism or whether you need to come home, God loves you and God wants you. If we can help, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.